Greetings, dysfunctionals. It is I, Dr. Ernesto, coming to you once again on that reality dysfunction onda. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Anita Fernandez about ethnic studies, the epic legal battle over Mexican-American studies in Tucson, the Chicanx Institute for Teaching and Organizing, known as Chito, where she and her colleagues are training the next generation of K-12 ethnic studies teachers in, in culturally relevant curriculum as we push into the 21st century. Anita, thanks for being here. Maybe we could start by you telling us a bit about yourself. Thanks for having me, Dr. Mita, this. Well, currently I am the uh, assistant dean at Prescott College and I'm overseeing Prescott College Tucson. So we have a centro here in Tucson that is a satellite campus or sort of a field station for the college. And currently we have a K-20 campus, Changemaker campus that we are leasing out space on and working together with two other institutions. So we're working with uh, Mexicayo Academy, which is a K-8 school, and then Changemaker High School, which is nine through 12. And we are building a K through 20 or K kinder through PhD pathway, um, predominantly for Chicanx, Latinx youth to provide them opportunities to access higher education more affordably and also to prepare students with culturally responsive, sustaining, rehumanizing kind of pedagogy that we know works uh, with this population of students. So wow. I work at college, but I also direct Chito as well. Okay. And so just to kind of talk a little bit more about Changemaker, I mean, I've been to the campus and just in case anybody's wondering, Yes, I am interviewing a number of my colleagues, mostly because they're doing extraordinary work in the communities where they're located at. So there is some nepotism that's happening on this podcast, <laughs> but hey, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more just about Changemaker, like and how that got started, because I think the work that you guys are doing there is, is pretty incredible. Yeah. So Changemaker High School um, is the, you know, it's their campus that we're on here. It's 10 acres. Um, they've only built on only built on three of the acres, and so the high school is a public charter school, and they focus on social justice, environmental justice, uh, sustainability. And so I've worked with Luis Perales, who's the head of the school, for a long time before the school started in his community organizing work with Tierra Libertad, and also worked with Mexicayo with Balti Garcia. Uh, down in Nogales. And so the three of us have had a long time relationship um, working together. And so we've always wanted to, in some way, formalize the relationship between the three schools. And so this was an opportunity to uh, all of us move in together, so to speak, and to really engage in the work together, working with the chiquititos in kindergarten all the way through the grades. And so the vision, um, you know, we've just started this project, the K-20 project, but the vision is that we'll have these cross-generational or cross-age experiences for the youth, along with, you know, field work and a lot of the environmental justice work that's going on here, engaging with the school in Nogales and focusing, you know, on this culturally sustaining pedagogy that we know works. And so it's an opportunity for us to be this professional development sort of model school. And so we have three tracks that we're focusing on. We're focusing on the culturally or the decolonizing culturally responsive teaching, but we're also focused on community organizing and then environmental justice. And so those three sorts of tracks are what we want to become a hub for here at Changemaker. 
we want to train up the youth so that when they're ready to launch onto college or whatever they choose to do after high school, that those are, you know, the three areas that they're going to focus in on. We'd love for them to go to Prescott College because those are three areas that we have at PC. Most importantly, we just want to like really help build the next generation of, of Rasa youth to move into these spaces and, and sort of reclaim those spaces that have been, especially the environmental space that has been so white um, yeah. in the past. Yeah. Really giving these young folks an opportunity to be at that table or actually to build their own table. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, that's good to build their own table. So as you were talking about this, I mean, I, I've heard you say a couple of times, culturally relevant, culturally sustaining curriculum or pedagogy. Do you think you could talk a little bit about exactly what that means? Yeah, so we actually don't say culturally, or I don't, and Chito, we, we really use more culturally responsive or culturally sustaining. Okay. And the reason being that the pedagogy, when we, when we talk about culturally responsive, it's about centering our curriculum around the lives of our students, right? So that every young person sees themselves, sees their ancestors, hears their histories as a way of you know, reclaiming the, the educational space and also helping the students to like build their academic identity where in traditional schools and traditional curriculum, they are really marginalized and minoritized and are, are taught to see themselves as deficient in, in different ways or deficit. And so, uh, cult so that's sort of the culturally responsive part. And then culturally sustaining is really looking at how do we sustain some of the practices and and ways of knowing and ways of learning that have traditionally been a part of, in, in this case, you know, Rasa folks. How do we bring back those traditions and, and embed them into the, not just into the curriculum, but into just the way we move through school, the way that we assess people, the way that we lead as administrators, how we engage in the community. So that's the culturally responsive part or sustaining part. And when you when you say traditions, you're talking about like indigenous traditions. Yeah. So specifically here's like the Mexica indigenous epistemology that was used in the MAS program that you know well, like with the Nawiolin and um, you know, those guiding principles. Okay. I was talking um the other day with uh, one of your teachers there, Oscar Medina. Mm -hmm. And we started talking a little bit about the Nawiolin. I think that it's very interesting in terms of thinking about it as a way of systematizing knowledge, right? How do you, I mean, how do the kids react to that when you start laying it out to them for the first time? I mean, because it's got to, I mean, it, for them, it's a, a whole new paradigm, you know, having grown up in settler colonial society and like you were just saying, you know, experiencing for pretty much their entire lives, the degradation of their own history or not even it might not even be degradation just the complete absence of anything that validates themselves as uh, young brown kids you know it really varies so we're seeing because we're just chito's just starting to really embed that work in change maker even though they were already doing some of it yeah and like really teaching the teachers how to operationalize the naoli and like what does that look like in practice and so you'll see, you know, we have an opening ceremony every morning. And so just that practice of literally getting young people into a circle and acknowledging the four directions and having sage and the concha and all those pieces, they're really uncomfortable, right? 
they're they're like why are we standing in a circle like what are you talking about miss like why do i at that sage stinks you know what's going on and so that was five weeks ago and yesterday we were out there and <laughs> like we don't make mexicans out of you yet right yeah. <laughs> there's, there's some young people that you can tell they're really like this this feels familiar there's yeah. something familiar about this i don't know why because i've never done this and then there's others that are still like this is some indian crazy shit like right. i don't know what we're doing here or why we're doing this it's a yeah Right. <laughs> I think that the humanizing piece, you know, that isn't these big words like that's Galipoca and all these other things, but just the way the behaviors, like having high behavioral expectation of the of the youth, and then also trying to create a humanizing space, they feel that like that's, I think what pulls them in to then be like, okay, this, okay, now I'm willing to maybe check this out and see how does this relate to my Cultura, my ancestors. It's also interesting to look at the youth that aren't Rasa here, which there aren't very many, but there are, you know, some white students, some black students, and mostly African refugee students. Hmm. Um, interesting. Yeah, and so thinking about how this isn't this isn't just about tying into your own cultura, but it's also just a, a humanizing methodology, right? It's about these practices and elements that are just human yeah some some students are really into it and some students are still not really clear what we're doing okay yeah yeah well that that makes sense i mean that's mm -hmm. that's always been my experience with other people throughout the years especially when you start talking to other chicanos about indigeneity mm -hmm. you know, they're just like yo that's no uh-huh and it's um and that was my notifications We'll see if that's uh, me. Um, and that was my other one. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Anyway, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that's totally fascinating. I think the work that you guys are doing down there is really cool. It's, it's one of the things that, that really drew me in the beginning uh, several years ago to the, to the work that was happening around defending the Mexican-American Studies Program in Tucson was because once you started to look at the statistics about the success of the program, right, it just became really clear that there was something different that was happening there. Yeah. The thing that really blew me away was when they showed us the math scores and they were showing how the students who were involved in the MAS program were scoring higher than all the other students in the math scores too. And at first I was like, well, okay, and they said, but yeah, but we don't teach math. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, I get it now. Yeah. And so I think that it's really interesting in the way that it disrupts this narrative, this deficiency narrative that you were talking about earlier mm -hmm. and really flips it and says, no, you know, deficiency in the beginning or through this whole process really has to do in some ways with a, a lack of self-awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Like our own ability to... Um, actually be a part of history to see the things that are happening around us and realize that our community plays a part and that we have an important role here in this continent. I've been very encouraged in watching students in the way that it turns them around because I, I always think to myself, man, you know, I didn't learn any of this until I was in college, right? What if I had started learning this when I was, you know, in kindergarten 
and then all the way through a PhD program. I mean, what a disruption to a settler colonial paradigm that would be. I mean, you just have people who are just like, no, that's, that's actually not the way it is. This is the way that it is. And so, yeah, super important. Anita, I know that, that you've been extremely involved with the MAS program for a very long time now. But I was hoping that you could talk with the listeners. I think most people who listen to this podcast are at least familiar with the struggle that happened in Tucson after Arizona House Bill 2281 outlawed the teaching of Mexican-American studies in the state of Arizona. And they're familiar that that happened. They've seen the, the documentary, maybe a lot of them anyways, Precious Knowledge. Maybe some of them haven't seen it. But there's a huge legal battle that happens as a result of that. And I know that you were very much involved in that. I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that a little bit and where things are at right now. Yeah, with that, with that legal struggle. Okay, so where we are with the legal struggle. So as of now, the, the law has been struck down. So um, after 20, 2010, when 2281 passed and then 20. 12 TUSD uh, eliminated the program. Yeah, and Judge Wallace Tashima um, came back after the, the teachers, after the teachers filed an appeal, uh, Judge Tashima came back and actually found that the law uh, was constitutional, um, which was a huge disappointment, especially because uh, Tashima had, you know, overseen other civil rights cases. His family was interred in Japanese internment camps. So we really had hope that he would find this law unconstitutional. So the, the case continued and actually went on to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Ninth Circuit judges ruled that the law was actually written based in racial animus um, or based with racial animus. So the way that it works is they bump it back down to the Arizona federal court. Uh, and two summers ago, we had a trial here. So which Judge Tashima had, was the judge overseeing that trial. So that whole episode, that trial was like, I hope somebody makes a movie about that someday because it was all the, all the cast of characters, Tom Horn, John Hoopenthal, um, Sean Arce, Curtis Acosta, you know, everyone, Nolan was, you know, literally on the stand. So it was Chicano scholars, and organizers and activists actually defending Chicano history on yeah. the side. Uh, it was really intense. And so, and Horn and Hoopenthal, you know, just getting up on the stand and saying the same things that they've always said, which was pretty remarkable. So the judge came down and, and found it uh, on our side and found that the, the law was indeed written based on racial animus and written specifically to advantage Hoopenthal and Horn's political campaigns. Whoa! So that was a big piece in there that it was written with, with that intent specifically for them to get reelected. Did he make that a part of his ruling? Yeah. Oh, snap. That's, that hurts. Okay. Yeah. So that was a huge victory for us. Really interesting, though, is, you know, on an aside, a lot of people don't know about that victory. And, and there wasn't a big celebration here in Tucson. It wasn't like there was much recognition for it. Uh, nationally, there were, you know, our, our allies nationally who all came to the court recognized it, but it's just been an interesting 
interesting thing to watch. So as of now, technically it is legal to teach what they were saying was illegal, but it's up to the school district whether they want to bring back uh, the Mexican-American Studies program, and which they have not. Yeah, they haven't done that, right? They have not because they have the culturally responsive curriculum program in its place. And they, you know, from their perspective, they're doing that work. They're doing the work. And so, um, but they could legally bring it back. And so that's where we are. I think the most exciting part, though, is that for us, like at Chito, it's not about ever the program ever coming back to TUSD. Right. It's about the precedence that that ruling has set. And it's actually already been used. Um, the Trump uh, Muslim ban, it was used as precedence in that case. It's been used in one of the DACA cases recently. So already we're seeing um, that ruling being used for the folks that we were hoping that it would be used for. Um, and as ethnic studies spreads now across the country, I think that, you know, that's obviously going to be a lot of pushback. And now we have this court case that, that will help with that. That's incredible. That's really the victory. It really is. Wow, that's really something. That's, that's, that's good. So let's talk a little bit about the spread of, of ethnic studies. I mean, it's been interesting for me to watch it, you know, as somebody who teaches ethnic studies on the university level. I've told my students a number of times that I actually think the, one of the best things that ever happened to Chicago Studies in the long run was Tom Horn and John Hoopenthal. It seemed to me, I don't think I'm wrong about this, that Chicago Studies as a discipline was in somewhat of a decline mm. over about a, a 10 or 15 year period. And, um, you know, with this attack through 2281, I mean, I just, I saw an explosion of renewed interest and resistance across the country. And where I, at one point, was kind of thinking that laws like this were going to start passing all over the place because they did try to pass a law like this in Michigan and a couple of other states, but they just didn't quite make it the way that they, they did here in Arizona. But now with this, this ruling, the one that you're talking about, it seems like the exact opposite is happening and that ethnic studies programs are now required in like 19 or 20 states mm -hmm. for high school graduation, which is great. Or is it? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Tell us. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right. I think that Tucson, you know, unfortunately, all the the damage that happened here became a springboard for a lot of the, not all of it, but a lot of the growth in ethnic studies across the country. I know that our colleagues in Texas uh, really feel that way, and folks in California and Washington, Oregon. That's a really good question. You know, is it? You know, the immediate response is, of course it is. The challenge is, do school districts know how to do this? Right. Do it in a way that is true ethnic studies. Right. So what we're seeing already is, as you can imagine, these corporate, flashy, you know, professional development organizations with high dollar tag on them are approaching the districts with this really watered down kind of multicultural ed program and districts love it because it's not polit too political and it's not true ethnic studies 
So it's very digestible for the superintendents. Right. So that's going to be the, the next battle is getting all of us together, Chito and other or, you know, organizations that are doing like critical ethnic studies, professional development, and trying to build solidarity amongst those groups so that we can be the ones at the forefront of doing that training. Because there's just not enough, there's also not enough of us. There's not enough capacity. I get calls all the time from districts um, and we have to say no because we just don't have the time or the resources to do all that training. So the other thing that um, I recently was at AERA, which is the big educational research association conference, and some of the folks who had written the curriculum that's now under attack for the California ethnic studies requirement, they were talking about, you know, is it really a good idea to hand over curriculum like this of any kind to statewide? Like, is that truly culturally responsive? Um, because it is statewide. And then also, is it really going to get done in the, in the right way? And so there's a risk with that as well. And so now there's a big controversy about the curriculum that was written as, you know, it got attacked by the right, which we expected, but now it, then it got attacked by the California Jewish caucus as being anti-Semitic and um, not teaching about the Holocaust enough. So that's really unfortunate. And so now the, the, the law to, to make ethnic studies officially a requirement in California, that has been put on the back burner for a year. And so it's off the table until the curriculum is rewritten. Mm. Yeah. So that was, that's what the holdup was then. I saw the headlines, but I didn't read any of the Yeah, articles. that's what the holdup was. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I yeah. mean, that's, that's important. Yeah, yeah. And one interesting part of the critique too, is that it's too jargony, which is like, you know, language is shifting and the, yeah, there's, there are new words for, for what we do and who we are and, to, to call that jargon and for to not want student young people to learn that is again you know that colonizing settler colonial structure is it the indigenous words that are jargony indigenous words words around gender identity mm. um things like heteropatriarchy you know words like that that is that jargon i didn't realize that was jargon yeah so. I, yeah, I, it seems like a perfectly normal way to describe the world to me, heteropatriarchy. Yeah. Are there any questions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we can't have people speaking uh, Indian in yeah. class. I mean, it, no. and you and I have years about. trying to stamp that out. Now, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, everybody's talking indigenous languages. Right. That's, that's a fail. Yeah, so, the savage, the savage uh, language has come back, yes. Savage tongue, yeah. yeah. All right, well, that's okay. That's really <laughs> interesting. No, it, it, it really is. So you've mentioned Shito a couple of times. Tell us what you all do with Shito. Tell us how people can get a hold of you, how they can get involved. Uh, yeah, so we are um, a educational consulting collective and so we do we offer professional development to school districts community colleges different organizations based on the work from the mexican american studies program uh, so decolonizing and rehumanizing pedagogy basically we have different institutes that are already set annually around the country and then you know so we have one in tucson every summer one in napa in october 
new one in Seattle in November, and then one in uh, Eastern Washington in February. Oh, and one in Salinas also coming up now in September. And then during, throughout the year, we also get requests just from specific districts that want us to come out or different community colleges. So we work a lot with folks in the Puente program, with their instructors. Mm -hmm. And basically our model is really about, rather than like going in for about a year, you know, with, an, with a school, we really go in and do like a two or three day full immersion institute and then try to come back, you know, a couple of times. So that's the work we do. And then, you know, we have teachers K-12, well, actually K-16 who come. We have administrators, a lot of school counselors, a lot of artists and organizers tend to come to folks that work with um, minoritized youth yeah. um, tend to come. And one of the things that also differentiates us is the indigenous epistemology for sure, but also there are some folks that do trainings like this, but they're only for teachers of color. Which, I, which is important to have that space, but we get asked all the time, like, I'm a white teacher, can I come to your institute? And our philosophy is anyone who's working with our youth needs this training. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Do you ever just tell them no? No. <laughs> no. You know, when they ask that question. Like, them, how no. white are you? Yeah. <laughs> how white are you? <laughs> yeah, you're, no, you're too white. No. You should um, give them the paper. The paper a little test up against yeah, their uh, how they used to give us the brown paper bag test <laughs> give them the white paper sheet test so. <laughs> i think uh no i think i think you're absolutely right i think anybody that's working with our community they need to they need to be exposed to the ideas they need to understand i mean because if they're i mean even i would say this you know as the uh son of a of a white mother right mm -hmm. like my mom is white mm -hmm. that um it's a mistake to think that that white people can't help us on this journey. It just is. And if they're there and they're there intentionally, it's also, I think, a mistake to uh, always think that, you know, there's some sort of like savior complex going on or something like that. I mean, you know, people really want to help sometimes. And I think it's really important for us to let people help if they yeah. want to help, you know? And so, yeah, no, that that's cool. I think that's good. But at the same time, I agree. There there have to be spaces um, for people that are, mm -hmm. you know, that are for them. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, but with the teaching force is still about 80% white nationally. So there you go. You know, and the and the, obviously the student body is getting more and more racially, ethnically diverse. So there's like this mismatch happening. And so we we need white teachers to be trained up because they can be really successful, um, culturally sustaining teachers. They just need to do a lot of their own self-reflection and work. Sure. Well, yeah, that, that would be super important. And there we go again. Um, I'm just so popular. That's what it is. <laughs> Everybody's sending me messages. They want it. Everybody wants to talk to me. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right. What else do you want to talk about? The only other thing I think I would say is that conversation you and I have had about the reality of the changing demographic and in the work that we do, like at Prescott College, Changemaker, Chito, that's really the work that we need to not just be doing the work, but we need to be training others to do that work because that's the reality of the future. And if the college or other institutions aren't, pre aren't preparing themselves to educate our communities, um, they're, they're going to shut down. 
right? Yeah. They're not going to be successful. And so I know that we've, we've talked about that and we're, we've been screaming it from the rooftops or whatever, trying to get people to listen. But I think that's a really important point there. It, it, just to bring it back around, when Anita says changing demographics, what she's actually specifically referring to is the dramatic decline of white high school graduates over the last decade. It was a little shocking, actually, how much that population in terms of them leaving high school, and it's not that they're uh, failing to graduate, it's just that there's that many less of them. Inversely, the number of specifically Latino or Latinx or Chicano or Chicanx, it's inverse to the decline of white students. Our population is actually exploding. And so like one of the things I know that when Anita and I were undergraduates a while ago, that <laughs> well, I'm not gonna say how long ago, <laughs> but when we were undergraduates a while ago, that one of the big issues on campus was uh, access, right? Like we needed, we, we were always pushing the university for more access, for more recruitment, that type of thing. But that's not really the, the issue anymore. I mean, Latinos are one of the largest groups entering college campuses for the first time mm -hmm. in the United States for like the last four or five years, right? So the, the issues shift, but they also become uh, an issue of retention. Yeah. Latino students are coming into college, but yeah. how are the colleges retaining them? Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's, yeah, I think it all just goes back to what the sister was saying just a, a couple of minutes ago about culturally sustaining pedagogy. Mm -hmm. I want to thank Dr. Fernandez for taking the time to talk with us today. The work she and her colleagues are doing in the classrooms of Tucson and through the Shito Institute are so important and vital to the mental, spiritual, and political well-being of our youth for the whole Chicanada. It is the type of deep political, cultural commitment that keeps the fires of resistance burning bright in our Chicanx indigenous communities. This is the Reality Dysfunction signing off. And until next time, stay alert, stay hydrated, and know where the exits are. <laughs>